We are going to be looking at a book in the Bible called the book of Jude. Hey Jude. Can you say that with me? Hey Jude. Yeah, say it like you mean it. Hey Jude. Yes, a song written by Paul McCartney. I love it. And the Beatles. Um, Let me pray to begin with. Father God, I just thank You for Your Word. I just ask, Lord God, that we will be able to dive deep and see what You want to say to us today out of this book. Lord God, we thank You for the opportunity to gather together freely, knowing that in many, in some parts of the world, this is impossible, where people don't even have copies of the Bible, where they have to smuggle pages in and out. Lord God, we just may we not take this for granted. May we be blessed to be a blessing. May we take this opportunity that we have to receive, take it seriously so that we get to give ourselves. Freely we receive, freely we give. So we thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, who here has ever read the book of Jude before? Oh, there you go. Well done. Jude is one of those books that you'll blink and you'll miss it. It is right before the book of Revelation where all the fun stuff breaks out. And Jude has got a lot of fun stuff in it as well. But it's one of those books where it's blink and you miss it because it's over in 25 verses. It has no chapters. It just basically fits on one page of most Bibles. And you think there, well, that's an easy one for you to pick, Chris. You're taking the easy option. <laughs> it is one of the most complicated little books that you could come across. And I'm only going to be able to touch on the shade. So if you have some interesting perspectives on the book of Jude and you're hoping me for deep dive on that specific, catch me at the end and we can have a deep dive on some of those interesting thoughts. But Jude, Jude is the name of the writer of this book. And the interesting thing about this writer is this writer has a brother who has written another book in the New Testament. He's a brother of another. Seems like God likes to work with brothers. We see Peter and Andrew are called. We see James and John are called. And we see this guy, Jude, is writing a book that is now in our New Testament. And Jude, it seems, is a key leader in the early church. The funny thing is we're not quite clear on which church he was a key leader in. Some people say it was the church in Jerusalem, which was the original sending church that gave birth to all the other churches that spread out, leading to each key church. The next key church was a church in Antioch, and then the next one was in Ephesus and flowed on. And so we're not quite clear on who Jude is writing to. He's writing this letter to a church, but it seems like he is significantly involved. And his brother, who has written another letter before, is James. So James and Jude are two brothers. They share another brother. This is a little bit controversial, but they have a half-brother. Share the same mother, but different fathers. And see, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus of Nazareth. So we know that in the Scriptures because we see in portions like Mark chapter 6, verse 3, or Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, where it seems like it is common knowledge that there are at least four brothers or half-brothers in the life of Jesus. Now, half-brothers because Jesus shared with them the same mother, Mary, but His father was not Joseph. His father was His heavenly father. Now, Joseph loved him, cared for him, and it seems like Jesus was the firstborn. But as was common in families at that time, families were dependent on having enough children to help them. Most families were dependent on what they could produce themselves. And it seems like Joseph, from, from what we understand in tradition, was a carpenter. 
And so it would have behooved them as a family to have as large a family as they could sustain so that they could survive. And so Jesus even had sisters. And the crazy thing that's mentioned in the Gospels is that it seems like these siblings who grew up with Jesus, could you imagine that? Hey, Jesus, <laughs> could you imagine that? <laughs> Jesus, pick up your dirty laundry. I don't know, I was about to say something else. <laughs> yeah, hey, Jesus, like, could you imagine just growing up day to day with the Son of God? who possibly has flatulence. I mean, Scripture doesn't say it, but He did humble Himself to human form. And these, these brothers are growing up and see, they grow up with Jesus. He does not begin His earthly ministry until He's 30 years old. And so we're left to assume, according to Scripture, that He didn't enter into public ministry with miracles and signs and wonders until He was commissioned after His baptism. And it seems like that these brothers and sisters followed Jesus around a bit and did not believe what He was teaching. Could you just imagine that for a minute? See, when you look at what Jesus taught, He quite clearly taught that He is and was the Saviour. He put Himself on the same level as God. That's why in some instances, the religious leaders went to pick up stones to kill Him. Jesus was not saying things that were not uncontroversial. He was saying to them quite clearly. In John, it says like the I am statements. I am the, the bread of life. I am, I am, I am. He's clearly saying I am because the word, the, the name of God, the most holy name of God, Yahweh, Yahweh, means I am that I am. Jesus was clearly telling them in a way that they could understand. I am God. And yet these siblings are travelling around on the outskirts and they do not believe. Just imagine that for a minute. Did not hold Jesus back. There's no evidence of him going around begging his family. Oh, please, please, please. It's interesting, his mother believed him. She's the one who experienced the miraculous birth, but the others didn't. It's interesting that you can have an experience with God that is so real for you, but it's, yet, it's hard sometimes to transfer that to others. And you've just got to allow people to do their own journey. So it seems like the family of Jesus did their own journey. And, but He didn't cater to them. He didn't, there's no sense that, actually, I would even say there's Scriptures that quite clearly say He was quite content to accept the fact that some believe in Him, some don't, and He will not control that. He's here to do what He's here to do. But the amazing thing about these brothers and, and, and sisters of Jesus is that after He died, was buried, and rose again, they had no excuse. And it seems like after that reality, they all came to faith in Jesus. Which is another reason for me on the proof of the resurrection of the dead. Scripture does not hide the fact that these people who are closest to Him denied Him. You think if somebody was writing the Bible in a way to convince you in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the one to follow, that if you were designing it yourself, surely you would have it so that the family members bow down and worship Jesus from the moment they were born. Oh, they just knew He was the Son of God and, and He did this and He did that and he, it was amazing. But Scripture captures the honest reality of people's responses, whether it's good, bad or indifferent. 
That's what I love about the Bible. There's no hiding the humanness in the Bible. We actually learn more about people in the Scriptures, about humans, what it means to be a human, than we even do, I think, about God. Because God only allows us to understand Him to the extent that He reveals Himself. We actually learn more about us and what it means to be people created in the image of God. And so if you were writing the Bible yourself, surely you'd write it in a way to convince people, hey, they bowed down and worship Him from the beginning. But these family members only followed Him after there was no uncertain terms. Oh, I guess I can't deny it now. Just imagine being Jude. We, we know about doubting Thomas. But I wonder if Jude is just kicking back there at McDonald's one day and Jesus walks in, resurrected from the dead. Jude lets out a word that I can't repeat. And from there, he chooses to follow Jesus of his own volition along with his brother James, and it seems like the other family members. So he cannot deny the truth. And for me, that's another proof of the resurrection of the dead. And so the book of Jude is the only writing that we have from this brother. I, I do need to mention that Jude is the Greek transliteration of the name. You want to know his name? Yeah. It's Judas. Oh, <laughs> Jesus had a brother named Judas. But... The translators felt like it was a bit on the nose to have a book in the Bible called the book of Judas. And so we went with the Greek transliteration of Jude. But it just goes to show that names carry different meanings. So what is Jude about? Well, like I said, it's a very short book, 25 verses. And Jude is writing for a purpose. We'll find in a moment that he was writing to cover something else and got news about this church that he's working with and quickly penned, I think, a bit of a shotgun of a letter. Like he's gotten news that something's going on and he can't sit still on it. He was going to write something else, but all of a sudden everything else is hijacked. I've got to get this off my chest. It's as if he's, he's composed a really, really quick email to send it off in the hope that that will turn things around. And whenever I read the Bible for myself and my own note-taking Bible, I'll try to put in there with each book what I... Think each book is about. So I'll see like Matthew is the book of the, the king of the kingdom. Because Matthew's main focus is to prove that Jesus is the king that everybody's been waiting for. Uh, when I read the book of Acts, I, I, I read about the reality of the church. So I just write that in. And so for this book, the book of Jude, for me, I, I would characterise it in two ways. It's either you could call it the book of stand or fall. Or another thought I had today, it's the book of grace and truth. Stand or for grace and truth. That's because Jude is dealing with one very specific issue. He's writing to a church that's been torn apart by a group of false teachers that have crept their way in. Seems like this is happening throughout the early church we think that the early church is a church where things are most ideal. And when I say early church, what I mean is the first generation of Christians. First generations, the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Jude literally grew up with Him, an eyewitness of Jesus. But yet we see, even with those who are eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, who had received the infilling of the Holy Spirit, still when they started churches and allowed things to grow, had to tend the flock and look after the health of congregations. That often when things are just left to their own devices, 
Things never stay the same. I don't know about you, it seems to me in my own life, I'll never stand still. I'm either getting better or I'm getting worse. But never in between. Things don't stop and just stand still. Either you're working towards growth, either you're becoming healthy, either you're maintaining health, either you're moving towards health as an intention or you're not. And what happens when we don't? We actually decrease and pull back. And Jude is writing to a church that has allowed something in that is starting to rob this church of its identity and who it's called to be. And he is ropeable. He's upset. He's upset because these people are stuffing people up. Jude is so convicted that he sends off this shotgun of a letter. And it seems like these issues were creeping up all throughout the first generation churches. We find in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, just listen to this. The Apostle Paul writing to a younger leader named Timothy that he's setting up in a church that started strong, bold, in a city called Ephesus, but has now lost its way. And Paul is sending Timothy, Timothy, you've got to fix this up. And this is what he says, If anyone teaches a false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness. Godliness means to live out what you believe. He is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy and quarrelling and slander and evil suspicions and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. Who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, all on its own. See, what they're dealing with is a form of teaching that you, you won't often hear preached or taught about, but just so you're familiar with the word, a teaching that crept into the early church that was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an idea. I just want you to listen to this for a moment and see if it resonates with anything you may have come across. Gnosticism is a philosophy that regarded physical matter as evil, but all things that are spiritual as good. So what did that mean? It meant that they would teach people, do what you wish in the physical because it doesn't really matter. They said everything that you do in the physical is an illusion. It's not real. Only the invisible is real. And so what they would teach as a Gnostic teaching, and Gnosticism as a word means secret knowledge. They would initiate people. They would, they would infiltrate churches and say, hey, can I tell you the truth? They're not teaching you the truth. Can I, can I teach you the truth? And I'll get you in, I'll initiate you into the truth. Here's the truth. None of it means anything. Do what you will. So this has crept into the early church. And Paul has been combating that. And Jude is now crying out about it. And his letter confronts it. And this is still an issue today. I remember Rhian and I had the honour of living abroad for seven years in a wonderful church in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And I remember one day, we'd have the weirdest people come in. It was an amazing church. We met in an old factory 
in, in, a, in a suburb in the city called Tulsarei Prebi. And the old factory was this, this terrible building. If you've ever been in, we had the worst tiles on the floor. These terrible garish green and cream tiles. We had, we had pillars all throughout the building, like something like eight pillars that if you were sitting in the wrong spot, you'd have to do this for the whole meeting to see. And it was only a room that if we're in Australia, look, gosh, to be honest, it would maybe be as big as from the front of the stage to probably... <laughs> Two rows before we get to the back there. And in Australia, you'd probably say it's suitable for about 200 people. We would regularly fit 500 in there. Just wall to wall. And I'd keep my eyes open because one of my roles there in the last couple of years was we pioneered a Bible college that trained up uh, and sent out church planters. And so I was very intentional about what we were teaching and why did it matter and what difference does it make. And I keep my eyes open. I remember I had this guy come in. I keep my eyes open, especially for foreigners. There were some foreigners we had to kick out because they were here for the wrong reason. You could usually tell from a mile away. And this one guy came in once and you got to know it was 40 degree heat, 98% humidity. And he came in decked out in this suit. And so immediately I thought something's up here. And so end of the service, I noticed that he starts handing out gifts to the Cambodians. Huh. He doesn't speak Khmer, so I start asking the Cambodians, you know, what this is, and they start explaining, hey, Chris, he's inviting us. He's got a special Bible study that he's doing tonight at his home. Huh. That's interesting. What's he teaching? Oh, we don't know. But he said he's going to give us a Bible and give us a computer and give us a, huh, that's interesting. I went and introduced myself. I noticed I was about a foot taller than him and made sure I stood very close. And I asked him, I said, hey, where are you from and what are you here about? And he was from Dallas. He'd just come in two days before. And he came as a missionary from his sending church. Ah, oh, what's the name of the church? I didn't recognise it. I said, hmm, what do you think of the service today? It's terrible. Oh, why is that? Well, you know in the Scriptures it says that we're not allowed to worship God with musical instruments. We must use only our voice. That God doesn't receive any worship done by musical instruments. There is a Scripture that says with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs to give praise to God. And there was a cult started that took that verse and built an entire belief system around it completely ignoring the fact that King David used an a ancient guitar to rock out to the Holy Spirit and headbang and bump along. No, 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 that was then. Now we're in the New Covenant. And in the New Covenant, we do not use stringed instruments or anything that you can push. No, only a voice. So it really sucks if you're a terrible singer. And we had an interesting discussion where basically I said, you're not welcome. I said, this is a new work. This is first generation Christians and you're coming in here to sow confusion. And you didn't even have the honour to come to us as the leaders and bring your disagreement to us first to see if we can journey together. You've crept your way in and you're bribing people. So I just want you to know this. I'm going to go to everybody that you went to today and I'm going to start saying to everybody I know in the church that you are somebody to steer clear of. Now that might sound pretty bold. 
but it's serious. What people believe matters. And people would come in and take advantage of this. That wasn't the only one, but that was one of the more fun ones. Jude is dealing with false teaching that has crept into the church. And so what I'd love to do, just for the next few minutes, and uh, we will not be having a late night, is that we're going to be going through the book of Jude together. And so if you have a Bible with you or you have it on your devices, go ahead and open it up. And we're just going to go through it verse by verse. And I'm going to do my best to unpack some context here. I won't do this with every book that we study in the Bible. In fact, most books are way too big to begin with, but this one works. And so Jude chapter 1, I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, If you follow along with my preaching, most of my preaching comes out of this translation. I believe you should read whatever translation you understand the best. Uh, Most of the English translations are excellent. Uh, The reason why I like the Christian Standard Bible is that it straddles the line between a literal translation of the Bible and a dynamic equivalence translation of the Bible. And so here's what it's meant by that. Literal is as much as possible, let's do word for word translations. But for anybody who knows another language, you know that sometimes word for word is impossible. It just can't translate. It doesn't make sense. And so what the translators of the Christian Standard Bible have said, as much as possible, we'll do literal but where it just does not make sense in the English language, then we'll do our best to interpret it. And that's like um, the NIV is a dynamic equivalent, uh, the New Living Translation dynamic equivalent, where they've taken (laughs) portions of the Bible and they've done their best to interpret it into today's language. There's still room for them, but I would say they're, they're probably less close to the original intention. And so for me, the reason why I preach from the Christian Standard Bible is I feel like it's the best balance of the both. You won't get me saying to you, you have to use one Bible over the other. All right, Jude. I like this. He starts by stating his name. Just imagine this, Judas. Yeah, I'm redeeming that name. (laughs) Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. First thing I just want to highlight there, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, but yet he does not claim that as a position of authority. I love that idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm James's brother. You know us, we're half-brothers of Jesus, but here's what we ultimately are, just like you, we're servants. Ooh, I love the Kingdom of God. There is no position for priority. There's no position for anybody to say that I'm closer to God than you. We are all together, all servants. And the word he uses there for servant is a servant by choice, not a slave. Not a conquered person that's been stripped of my life. Not somebody who's been taken away. No, I'm somebody who's freely come and said, I want to serve. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who are called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. What you'll find throughout the book of Jude is that he often talks in threes, which I think is beautiful because he's hearkening to this reality that God is three in one. So he, he, he talks about the idea of being called, being loved and being kept. You know, we're called. Every single person is called into a relationship with God. It's up to us to respond. We're all called, but we choose to be chosen. Loved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, but kept. The idea is that everybody who has chosen to follow Jesus for themselves have received as a down payment the Spirit of the living God. And He is that witness that keeps us and guides us. We're not alone. 
We're called, we're loved, we're kept. Verse 2, may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, I love that. He doesn't refer to this church as, hey, peeps, hey, patricianers, hey, 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 people underneath us, hey, hey, people that I'm over, hey, people, no, hey, friends. So the idea that the early church covered, which is so critical for us to unearth today, is that they journeyed together. Got to live the journey. Nobody is apart from doing the journey. We need to do it together. Dear friends, we're on this journey together. (laughs) Although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. He was going to write something else. He was going to write about the salvation that we received in Jesus. I, I don't know. It could have ended up something like the book of Romans, like a big breakdown of this deep spiritual truth. But he gets ear that there is something going on that's causing this church to lose its way because people are getting caught up with these false teachers. And so he starts out with his intention. I'm appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. That word contend, that word right there is only used once in the entire New Testament. It only appears once, that word contend. And that word comes from a a Greek athletic mentality that you are to contest, compete and win. It's the only time that word is used in the entire New Testament. Contend, contest and win in the faith that you've been entrusted. He, he's drawing them to put a line in the sand. He, he's drawing them to either be ones that would tolerate an influence coming in to strip them of the reality of God or to be people that would stand against. You're either going to stand or you're going to fall. And I'm appealing to you to stand. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago, He's not too happy with these people. Have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Jude doesn't go into detail about what he's directly facing there, but he just highlights the fact that, hey guys, there's people that have come in, they've looked good, but they're not good. Here's how I know they're not good. Here's what they're promoting. They're promoting, they're, they're promoting self above others. They're providing self above God and they're providing self above it all. They're, they're promoting this idea that God exists to make you happy and that your life is meant to be lived by whatever tickles your doll. This idea that deny... They're denying Jesus. Why are they denying Jesus? Because to follow Jesus, Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And I know that is a hard teaching. If it wasn't in the Bible, we wouldn't say it. But see, Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life abundant. So anything that he calls us into is actually ultimately for our benefit. He is not a killjoy. He is not seeking to rob us of life. He's seeking for us to have life. And so these false teachers have come in with a mentality that is all focused on self. Rob, when he was preaching last week, said something. Rob, Rob's amazing. Rob Nayas Savimbo, when he preaches, he says things I can't say. And from the platform, he says, you do you, boo. 
Man, he needs to do a whole message on that. I was at an uh, engagement party a few weeks ago. Came across somebody who is an ex-church member of many years ago. And he'd engaged with me at the start of the year to say, hey, I want to get my life back on track with Jesus. It was amazing. And then he just disappeared. And so we happened to connect and he said to me, hey, you know what, I've just decided to live my own truth. And his own truth is something that has isolated him and taken him away from everybody who says that they love him in his world. And so while he's living a life of selfish pleasure, he's lost everything. And I expect at some point he'll reach out. Jude is challenging people that come in with that intention. See, not everybody who comes in with a word of God is giving a word of God. You know, one of the things I'm really mindful of in the culture that we live in is that because we have access to so much teaching from all throughout the world, we don't actually know the reality of those that are giving the messages. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying to you don't listen to other teachers. Uh, there are a lot of other uh, preachers much, much better than me and, and great people that can unpack the Scriptures in ways I could only imagine. But here's the difference about journeying in a local church together and receiving the Word of God together. You get to watch me. You get to watch others. And you get to see whether we reflect what we say we believe. And that matters. Because a message is not meant to be simply said, it's meant to be lived. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, Although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. Man, that is harsh. What are you talking about? First off, the writer Jude there is talking about things that took place in the Old Testament. Talking about things that took place in the book of Deuteronomy and, and Exodus where God's people are led out of generations of slavery and led into freedom. And if you follow the account on, challenging things take place. You see people that persisted in this thing that Scriptures call unbelief lost their way. This thing unbelief seems to be a big point that comes up throughout Scripture to the point where Jude says that it causes them to be uh, destroyed who did not believe. Why is unbelief an issue? Aren't you free to believe what you will and what you want? Well, the way the Bible views belief, the way the Scriptures unpack it, the way the heart of God approaches it, is that what you believe matters above anything else. But it's not just lip service, it's life. It's a deep-seated conviction that shapes everything that we are. That you only believe, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You either do or you don't. You'll either stand or you'll fall. And so Jude is reminding them, hey, what happened to those that got caught up in unbelief? They were in God's community and they lost their way. Why did they lose their way? Because unbelief crept in. And it pops up all throughout the New Testament. There's this issue of unbelief is insidious. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 to 31 Jesus has been uh, 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 put on the spot by, by the Pharisees, the local religious teachers, because they've noticed that He's doing miracles that they cannot deny. They're, they're not idiots. They may not believe that Jesus is who He says He is, but they cannot deny that He's healing people, that He's casting out demons. 
He's doing things that they've never seen done before. And they start saying amongst themselves, well, you know how he does it. He, he, he does it because he's in league with the, with the demons he's casting out. He does it by, it says, the power of Beelzebub, the, the Lord of flies, and, and that Jesus is nothing more than a sorcerer. And so you want to know what Jesus' response to that is? <laughs> anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. He's not saying that as a word of judgment. He's saying that as a point of reality. You gather to Him and you draw from His strength and you will not scatter. You don't gather to Him. You're on your own. Not because He doesn't invite us, but because we've chosen to defellowship ourselves from Him. Verse 31, Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. This is called to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Uh, Don't type it into YouTube. What you'll find is a whole heap of atheists F-bombing the Holy Spirit. As this idea that if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, I'll go to hell and I don't care. I'll show you that I don't believe hell is real. I'll F-bomb the Holy Spirit. I'll turn this little tirade against God into a Quentin Tarantino film. Just bang, 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 bang. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Context is... They were saying that the miracles He was doing were done by the power of something else. What's He drawing attention to? It's unbelief. You don't actually believe the truth. And it's because of unbelief, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The only sin that relegates people to a Christless eternity is unbelief. You can be forgiven of anything if you repent. But to Unbelief means that you hold on to that and you carry that with you. It's the only unpardonable sin. Because you're not even willing to come to God in the first place. Hmm. Verse 6. I'm going to read verse 5 again. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Again, it was their choice. It's their choice because they walked away from Him. I always approach it like this, that God's grace is ever-present and they're ready to cover for those that run to Him. But if you live life outside of His grace, then you come under your own judgment. The world is fallen, broken and out of control. So it's available to enter in at any point until it's gone too far. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, He is kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. This is a hilarious little verse. It harkens back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, where it talks about this ridiculous thing happening where the sons of God came down and married the daughters of men. And there's different theories on what that means. An ungodly line of Seth marrying into the godly line. And da-da-da-da-da. What I think it means, according to this scripture, is that angels came down and interacted with humanity in a way that it would take me two hours to even unpack some of the different theories. But there's a reason why God destroyed the world with a flood. And it's not just because people were mucking up. What if there was something bigger at play here? So Jude is reminding these people that, hey, don't you know how God has dealt with these things? Because it destroys life. Remember, these guys, they bailed 
on their original estate. They bailed on everything they'd been given. And they entered in of their own volition to something that separated them from the love of God. And they're stuck. Don't allow yourself to get stuck as well. Verse 7, likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. This is a hard book to teach in our current culture. What was the issue with Sodom and Gomorrah? If you read the account in the book of Genesis, it says that angels went into that town to see who could be saved out of it. And what the people wanted to do was to capture those angels. This is ridiculous. I can't even imagine what this looked like, but to have their way with them. The original Game of Thrones is the book of Genesis. There's some crazy stuff recorded. But it's called out as nothing more than less than what is really available. Verse 8, in the same way those people relying on their dreams, these people, he's now talking about the false teachers, defile their flesh. So he relates these false teachers to all these people that have gone ahead and just stuffed everything up. In the same way these people relying on their dreams. Can I just submit to you? Uh, Not everybody has a dream has a dream from God. Not everybody that sees a vision sees a vision from God. We need to test the spirits, Scripture says. Everything should align with the Scriptures. If anybody ever comes to you and says they've dreamed a dream that cannot be clearly connected into the reality of revealed Scripture or test the spirits somehow or be accountable, it's okay to question it. See, that story I told about the guy that comes in and says it can only be vocal instruments, that comes from somewhere. That comes from somebody reading a scripture and totally out of context, turning it into an entire movement. No, read the whole flipping book. Connect the dots, mate. Come on. David rocked out with a Gibson Les Paul. And yet when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. This comes out of nowhere. Uh, You will not find in Scripture this account. This is why Jude is a very difficult book to teach. I've got theories on it. But this is an account that it seems to be well known to Jude's readers because he doesn't explain it. He says, hey, you know about this account where the archangel Michael, an angel, disputed with Satan for the body of Moses. Here's the theory behind that. And all I can do is give you a theory, okay? Here's the theory. We know that Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration before He was crucified was revealed to three people, Peter, James and John, as the the, the glorious one. And they saw Him in His majesty. They saw Him for who He really is. They were shocked and amazed. And it says that two others appeared on the mountain with Him. Two others that had passed on. One was Elijah who had ascended to heaven in a whirlwind to represent the prophets and to affirm in the mouth of this witness that this is the one that they've all been waiting for. And another appeared who was there. And his name is Moses. And he was there to represent the law because Moses was the one who received the law of God. And it was to be in the mouth of two or three witnesses, my ways are confirmed. 
And so you had Elijah represent the prophets and Moses represent the law. And then you had the voice from heaven speak. There was no uncertain terms. This is Jesus. But the idea is, how did Moses end up there? And so here's in Jewish tradition, this is what they believed. They believed that when Moses died, before he was able to pass into the promised land and he was buried, that God in his goodness resurrected Moses and that it was the archangel Michael who represents the angel of the resurrection that disputed with Satan because Satan said, no, he has to stay in the grave. And they had a dispute. And the dispute that won out was the promises of God. He will see the promised land. He will see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, that is only a theory. I only bring this up in this setting. You will not see me teach that on a Sunday as clear fact. But it's here in the book of June. Why is it here? Interesting. Verse 10, But these people, these people, these false teachers blaspheme anything they do not understand and what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, like beasts. (laughs) By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have plunged into Balaam's error for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. The way of Cain, the error of Balaam and the rebellion of Korah. There's are three accounts from the Old Testament. Cain is the first account with his brother of bringing a worship, a sacrifice to God. Cain brought the fruits of his land, of his produce. His brother Abel brought the fat of the land, a sacrifice that cost him so much more. And Cain became insecure and jealous of somebody else's blessing. And what was his response? To murder his own brother. What is Jude saying here? He says, you you cannot let this stuff in because here's what's going to lead to insecurity and jealousy. Do not tolerate that in your midst. What else does he say? The error of Balaam. Balaam is a false prophet from the Old Testament who said that he had knowledge of God but yet would hire himself out to the surrounding nations to curse people or bless people depending on what you asked him to do. And Balaam was employed to come and curse the Israelites as they're travelling through to their promised land. And every time he tried to curse them, he couldn't. Here was the error of Balaam. Here's the error. Balaam actually knew God but did not live for him. And he, I'm sorry to say this, he prostituted his gift for gain. Balaam did have a gift, but he prostituted it for gain. Here's the warning that Jude is saying. Do not allow into your midst those that would seek to use you for their own personal gain. Call it out. The rebellion of Korah. Korah takes place in number 16 where division and divide was stirred up by Korah against Moses. And it says in the Scriptures that they were swallowed up by the earth and taken down to Sheol, which is another word for hell, alive. And what was the rebellion of Korah? Is that he was unwilling to follow along with what God was saying. Not not just talking about Moses here, with what God was saying. And he seeked to supersede the Word of God for himself. So you have the way of Cain, of pride that gives birth to insecurity and jealousy. You have the error of Balaam, somebody who chooses to use their gift for gain and the rebellion of Korah, somebody who chooses to sow dissension and division to cause a rebellion. 
All of these things are challenged because they bring to them death. Verse 12, we're going to finish up shortly. These people, these people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts. Their love feasts were their connect groups. They'd meet together and have communion and have meals and fellowship together. And he's saying they're dangerous reefs. You're, you're sailing along, living your life and you think all things are good, but you're going to be uh, surprised to find that the reef is going to tear the bottom out of your hole. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feast as they eat with you without reverence. Oh, now here we go. This is the point. You can highlight this. You can see this. They're with you, but they have no reverence. What does that mean? They do not honour God. They do not honour. You can see it. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. Ah, are they true shepherds? What's a shepherd meant to do to lay down his life for his sheep? Ah, you can see this stuff, guys. They are waterless clouds being carried along by winds. Trees in late autumn, but they're fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds. Wandering stars from whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have said against Him. These people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words. Flattering people for their own advantage. But you. So he's been talking about them. Now he's going to talk about you. Dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end times there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. Beth, Lige and um, Summer, if we're going to invite you just to prep us and we'll steal the deal in a moment. Jude is a heavy book. Could you imagine if I got up here on a Sunday and just read some of those things without a context? No, it's, it's easy to, hey, like, I, I'm mindful that we have to help people understand Why? Because again, Jude's writing to people that understood this stuff, okay? He's writing to people that understood what the way of Cain means, what the heir of Balaam was, what the rebellion of Korah is. We're in a culture that doesn't. That's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying that it's important that we give context to these things. Why is it in there? Because I believe with all my heart that the way of Jesus is the best way. I'm not in this because I think that we're better than anybody else. I'm not in this because I think that our job is to look down on anybody else. I actually honestly believe with all my heart that Jesus is real, just like his half-brother Jude, who didn't believe in him but now does. I actually believe Jesus is real. I actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I actually believe that he lived. I actually believe that he died and I actually believe that he rose from the dead. I actually believe that his spirit lives in us if we choose to allow him. And I believe this matters because here's why. Jude is writing to a church that started strong and is starting to fall apart. And here's the warning to us. Things don't just stay the same. They either get better or they get worse. 
I wish it wasn't that way. I wish that we could just do something once and it's done. But things are either decaying or getting healthier, depending on what we choose to do with it. I turn 40 next month. And i got to say, I'm the heaviest I have ever been in my entire life. Things are slowing down. <laughs> Many start well, few finish well. And so Jude challenges his readers. I know it's, it's harsh in our culture. Some of these things are just bang, 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 bang. Man, where's the grace of God in it? It's there. It's there. It's just that we have a misunderstanding of what grace is. So we think that grace, grace means, grace means this, that my daughter Zoe can draw all over her room with her textures. And that when I come into her, I just pat her on the head and say, well done. Instead of saying, no, you're painting and fixing this. We're in a culture that's taken this word grace and interpreted it to mean, you do you. It's a little bit Gnostic. The physical doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're addicted to this substance. Now, can I just be clear here? I believe that as a church, we should journey with anybody at whatever stage, okay? People do not need to be perfect to walk through these doors at all. Let me just be honest though, I will protect the pulpit and we will not just give the microphone to anybody, but anybody is welcome to journey with us. And anybody who's willing to go on a journey of growth, we do not have an expectation, oh, you've got to meet this milestone, oh, you've got to do that, oh, you've got to get to... No, no, no. What we believe is our job is to help you encounter God for yourself and He'll do the transformation. But we will call out the truth because if we can't call out the truth, what do we have to stand on? We need to do it with as much love as possible, understanding that every single one of us is only in this position because of the grace of God. But what is the grace of God? Is the grace of God meaning that I can choose to do whatever the heck I want? Or that I choose to bring my life to bear with the conviction that I have that Jesus is real and our life actually matters? means I'm quick to say sorry when it's my fault. means I'm quick to repent when I stumble. means I'm quick to reach out to brothers that would lift me up when I feel like I'm weak. means that I take responsibility for myself and I don't wait for somebody to fix me. I come to the Holy Spirit. Here's what grace really means. If you look into the original meaning, it means unmerited favour and enabling power. It's one of those words that is two-sided coin. And if you just have one side, unmerited favour, it's beautiful, it's sweet. No, no, no. Flip the coin. Same coin, same word. Dual meaning. Both meanings are critical. The other side of the coin says enabling power. God would never call you into anything that He wouldn't empower you to do. He would never invite you into anything that He would not empower you by His Spirit to live. God is not a killjoy. He's not looking to point at you and say, ah, you suck, you're not good enough. He does not set anybody up for a failure. God in His goodness 
desires for us to live out of what it means to be truly human and to be truly human is to live as an image of God, an image bearer of the One who created us. And even if it takes me till the day that I breathe my last to keep on pursuing Jesus, to contend, to contest, to win, then that will be a life well lived. Can I finish the book of Jude and can we seal with worship? Can I ask you to stand to your feet? The team have a reflective song that we're gonna just enjoy and then we'll seal things up. But I wanna read the end of Jude. I know a lot of what he said is heavy, but I want you to hear this end if you have a Bible that sometimes puts headings at different parts of the Scriptures. One of the headings you may see here is a benediction. And a benediction is a blessing, is a word spoken. And so Jude has challenged this church, hey, be mindful, stand strong. But this is how he seals it. Listen to this as we prepare to worship. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to protect you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of His glory. I'm going to say that again now to Him who is able to make you, you, to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time until now and forever. Amen. Lord, we just echo the words of Jude. Give us the strength to persevere. Give us the anointing to press on. Let us be people that finish stronger than what we started. Let us be people that take hold of the grace that You've given us and see that propel us forward. Let us not accept things as though they are and say, Lord God, You have more in mind even for us. Let us stand with those who waver and come alongside them to support them. Let us even see others snatched from the fire. But Lord, above all, may we draw upon You as our strength. In Jesus' Name.